1: Hello there, and welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde. Thank you for tuning in on the America Out Loud Network. All right, I'm going to take you off in a very uh, different direction today. All right, I like to talk current events, and we're going to talk a little bit about current events. But I feel like there's, I feel like there's some really overlooked perspectives that that perhaps could help us in whatever it is that we're trying to do. Now, first and foremost, I understand there are there are issues about which we all care deeply. And in fact, I'm going to hazard a guess. Stop me if I'm wrong. But uh, perhaps there are some issues you care strongly enough about that you would be willing to stick your neck out. You'd be willing to stand up and be counted in order to try to use your influence for good. Now, that's going to look different for different people, okay? Some people will, uh, they'll put on a uniform and a badge. Some people will, um, stand up and protest, chain themselves to a tree or whatever, you know, to to protest logging. I don't know. Whatever it is, the bottom line is it comes down to when we believe strongly enough in things, and and by things I'm talking about uh, principles like liberty, like free markets, freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. If you care enough about those things and you believe this is something that needs to be defended, that uh, needs to be promoted. In fact, I'll put it another way. I'm going to quote uh, a former secretary of agriculture by the name of Ezra Taft Benson, who talked about the importance of learning how to make sound ideas popular and how to expose and make unsound ideas unpopular. So just as a, for instance, if we were to say the idea of personal liberty is a sound idea, how would you go about making that more popular? And, you know, the flip side of the coin is, you know, the things that take away from it, <clears throat> collectivism, socialism, other, various other isms that subsume the rights of the individual. How would you go about exposing those and making them unpopular? Now, I got to preface what I'm about to say here with it's, it's not a matter of, of being known for what you're against or who makes you angry or who you don't like. There are plenty of people out there, and there's plenty of commentary out there that's driven by that uh, that enemy-driven thinking. And it's you know I'm not going to pretend like it doesn't have a ready audience. In fact, there are a lot of people respond to it. But I'm going to ask you to consider: is it possible people respond to this kind of thing because it's appealing to base emotions? In the same way that Carl's Junior. and I'm harkening back a few years. I don't watch much TV these days, but Carl's Junior. for a long time used very sexy girls to sell their very sexy hamburgers. So, you know, it was, yes, I love a good hamburger, but uh, when, when they put it on the screen with some eye candy to go along with it, it's not really so much my stomach they're appealing to as, you know, that, that hardwired sex appeal of, of the models that are promoting whatever the product is. Okay, well, it works the same way in promoting ideas. If you're using base emotions and fear, is a base emotion. Hatred is a base emotion. Anger is a base emotion. To get people to feel those things or to think that they are feeling those things is not that hard. Here's the tough part. Inspiring people to stand for something because they recognize at some level in their soul that it's right, that it's good. And in fact, they recognize this at a level that they would be willing to stand up and suffer for their beliefs If necessary. Now, perhaps we know people who are like this. You know, I I can think of a few people, but not very many. Part of that is because it's so much easier to just jump on social media and, oh, look, I've got a Ukrainian flag in my uh, avatar. Or I've I've posted this uh, slogan, Black Lives Matter. and Look, I've got this icon that shows I'm a good person. Or I just I made a very bold and, and daring statement. I think racism is wrong. Wow. I mean that that kind of courage is well, it's not really courage at all is it? So I want to spend some time today talking about how to change people's minds. And it's it's not, you know, like there's some kind of secret uh, alchemy that has to take place we're going to transmute to lead into gold. It's more of a matter of how we approach things. Am I going to require people to agree with me or require people to think like I do or to accept the ideas that I'm promoting or am I going am I going to try to inspire them? in a way that it's their decision and not just me twisting their arm until they say uncle. Does that make sense? So the first thing I want to do is I want to share with you an essay from Paul Rosenberg that illustrates why it's so much easier to try to appear as a good person than it is to actually live as a good person. And I think social media is probably the best example I can think of for for how this plays out. He has an essay titled How a Twitter Mob is a religious experience. And he starts with a tweet. Here's the, here's the tweet. People should not be treated differently because of their skin color. Now he says, I'll be brief, but he says, I want to explain how social media mobs provide people with a religious experience. And without this bit of understanding, he says, I don't think we can make proper sense of this new phenomenon. But to put it simply, social media mobs transmute painful emotions into a belief in one's own righteousness. Which, by the way, is what religious experiences also do. So to explain, he says, I'm going to use a fairly standard religious experience, the evangelical conversion, as a comparison. And he says, this is with apologies to evangelicals. So please, don't think he's trying to single you out and ridicule you. It's just look at the parallels. Number one, the convert is deeply affected, usually guilty, by the less than ideal facts of his or her own life. Number two, they're given a reason to believe that they can be something better by the sacrifice of Jesus to redeem them. Number three, once they accept that, they emerge as a new creature with righteousness conferred upon them by God himself. So the person going through this comes to the other side feeling newly righteous. And so the process can be summarized as the transmutation of base emotions into righteousness. And the process turns on the reason, upon the reason to believe. Now he says, please bear in mind, I'm not saying that this is fraudulent or that it's the only religious experience, but just using it as an example. His point is, this is the very same process we see in the Twitter mob. And the best example of this are the Twitter mobs that centered on the COVID event. Now he says, I'm not trying to slam either side with this. It's just such an overwhelming example that I can't begin with any other. So let's go through it in stages. So, number one, the beginning state of this religious experience was fear. The social media algorithms ramped it up, of course, maximizing engagement and creating large groups of very frightened people. Number two, because there is no God in this process to confer righteousness, righteousness had to be manufactured by creating Satan figures to oppose. Opposition to pure equal, evil equals righteousness. That fo- that role fell to those who resisted wearing masks and then was passed to the unvaxxed. Number three, next came the reason to believe and for the social media mob it was behavioral, rising to the level of chemical. The confirmation of others has been a factor in all sorts of group experiences, but it was taken to a new level by the Facebook and Twitter algorithms and the bots pushing those algos. Likes, shares, and thumbs up are little shots of dopamine. They're addictive and they're powerful. This provided a more sufficient, a more than sufficient reason to believe. And number four, in the end, reviling the non-compliant conferred righteousness upon the mob. So what we see in that process then is fear being transmuted into righteousness. Now he says it's also worth noting that breaking out of these groups can be very difficult. Here's a passage from Sam Kean's The Passionate Life, to make the point. Quote, It is disturbing for an individual to reject the tribe's claim to self righteousness because it excludes him or her from the civil religion, the social immortality system, and the ritual of scapegoating, in which guilt is alleviated by being assigned to an outcast or enemy that the tribe may destroy in the name of God. Yeah, we definitely saw that play out over the course of. You know, the pandemic and the lockdowns. So Paul Rosenberg says it's important to see that one religious experience of this type rolls directly into another. So in this case, the mobs moved directly from the declining COVID experience into the new Ukraine experience. And again, he says, I'm not picking sides. I'm just pointing out that the response to the war in Ukraine became an instant worldwide phenomenon. while the war in Yemen never did. Even World War II didn't start out with millions of young people carrying around flags of a foreign country. So with fairly few exceptions, the people who now hold Putin as a devil figure are the same ones who held the unvaxxed as devil figures. The process has been the same. The only thing that's changed has been the devil figures. Now, he says, having made my point, I'm going to stop here. He says, I don't feel nearly as good writing what's wrong articles as I do with what's right pieces. But Paul Rosenberg says, I simply thought this one was important enough to publish. I didn't want to look back years from now and think that I really should have done more. And he says, I'll give you one last fact by noting that policymakers are also part of these social media mobs. And that their choices generate feedback that loops back to themselves, amping up with each iteration and leading to decisions that are badly out of proportion. So, even if you don't like his religious assertion for some reason, these social media systems very clearly furnish people with prepackaged group virtue. In the end, the whole exercise boils down to a single assumption. You ready for this? That complaining in the prescribed way makes you righteous. And that's just foolish. I don't know, I see a lot of wisdom in, in what he's saying here. And I want to illustrate this, and I wish I could remember the name of the professor who does this experiment with his students. But it's a very powerful experience where he'll ask his students, if you lived during the time of slavery, what would you have done? Would you have been out there as an abolitionist? Would you have been on the front lines of trying to free the slaves? And you can probably guess what most of the answers are, right? Most of these students are like, of course I would. I'm a good, noble, brave, you know, contender for truth justice in the american way whatever it is but the point is most of us would choose to see ourselves as of course i would be a hero in that in that instance and of course i would stand for the right thing because i am a good person and this is where the professor more or less springs the trap and says okay in that case tell me what you're doing right now that requires you to take a stand against something that is accepted and embraced and supported by the vast majority of society. And that's where people start doing a pretty good impression of a brook trout. Sitting there with their eyes wide open, just, uh, one time, looking around the room, maybe looking at the floor. You think about it. To stand up against slavery, at the time when slavery was actually a thing codified in law. There were literal slave catchers who would go out and catch those who escaped from slavery and return them to their owners. For a person to stand up against that, even though there were those who said, well, I think it's, you know, a terrible thing that we do. They didn't want to stand up because so much of society actually, they, they accepted it. And to stand up against slavery at that time You risked getting yourself tarred and feathered. You risked having your name dragged through the mud. I mean, the tar and featherings are probably worse than just getting your name dragged through the mud. But there was very real risk. You could lose your job, friends, family would turn their backs on you. You would be basically marginalized to the fringes of society because no respectable person, in other words, nobody within the mainstream of society, would hold such an opinion. And they didn't until it was safe to do so. Now, the lesson here is not to call everybody out as cowards, but simply to to point out saying you're going to stand up for something and actually standing up for it is a very different thing. And the people today who are bucking the trend, I'm going to use a couple of examples here, the Canadian truckers. Now, granted, they had a lot of support. But look at what they were putting on the line. Having their trucks, therefore their livelihoods, impounded and towed away having their financial accounts frozen and being blacklisted from certain financial institutions? I mean, that's just one example. How about people who stand up for freedom? Do you, know, do you know anybody who's actually been to jail because they dared stand up against the system? And I know the the popular way to dismiss that is, well, you know, if you're going to do it, you've got to do it within the rules and do it within the law and so forth. And look... I am personal friends with Ryan Bundy and with Ammon Bundy, and I've known the Bundy family for quite a few years. You may have heard of them a little uh, dust up about, what was it, eight years ago down in Bunkerville, Nevada. And I want you to know, even as Ryan's friend at the time, he was keeping me and a similar group of friends absolutely appraised of what was happening with their ranch, and the Bureau of Land Management coming in to impound and, and to trespass their cattle off of their grazing allotment. There were times where I doubted him and was like, geez, why are you doing it this way? Why do you have to be so stubborn? Well, since then, I've had a chance to not only have a first first uh, front row seat as to uh, the the aftermath of that, including the, the trial, the federal trial of the Bundy family in Vegas. But to see the outcome where the Bundy's were. They were freed. The charges against them were dropped. They are still ranching just like they were eight years ago and longer, (laughs) just like before. And here's what I've learned. The system will never give you permission to stand up to it. And that means any person who's going to stand for what's right, especially if you look at the, the shrinking circle of things we're still allowed to think and still allowed to do, it's never going to be easy. You will always make someone upset. Someone's always going to be criticizing and say, that's the wrong way to do it. Now, believe it or not, the Bundys did it and were able to hold the moral high ground because they never were the initiators of aggression or violence. You can't say that about the federal government and its response to them. They were trying to instigate some kind of a violent backlash as an excuse to crack down. And it didn't work. So my point here is... If you are going to be the kind of person who's going to stand up for truth, you have to be willing to suffer for your beliefs. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was the one who said, to stand for truth is nothing. For truth, you must sit in jail. I understand that more clearly now than I did before. And that's not to say that if you're not getting thrown in jail, you're not doing the right job. But I think you get what I'm saying. You can't just acquiesce and glad hand and get along with everybody, you know, um, to the point that uh, you're actually supporting what is being done if it's wrong. And where that line is where you say, "Okay, this is this is where I have to draw the line. This is where I am willing to part company with polite society because I cannot allow my principles to be compromised further. I don't know what that line is. You have to figure that out for yourself. But simply posting something on social media or chanting in unison with the crowd, that doesn't make you a good person. What makes you a good person is the willingness to live up to the truth that you possess, even when it is impossibly difficult to do so. And this may sound strange to say, but I've got to say it. People who do that, particularly those who put their faith in God, will find God will stand with them. That doesn't mean it's easy. Many of the Bundy family members sat in jail, sat in prison, frankly, for two years, waiting for their trials to play out. But when they were freed, to them it was absolutely a matter of faith. It was their faith that liberated them and nothing else. All right, let me me shift to a slightly happier way to look at this. Let's talk about how to change someone's mind. Walker Larson, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, says, I was recently chatting with a group of people when the dialogue drifted to what could be done about the problems in our society. One woman observed that solutions can't come through force, but rather by changing how people think. Walker says, I think that she's right. After all, political and cultural wars are won by winning people over to certain ideas. Now, obvious though it may sound, if the majority of people in our country believed the right things, our problems would be quickly solved. In fact, it doesn't even have to be a majority. If 10% of them held that belief strongly, you would see a shift in public opinion. But that's, that's another story for another time. Now, arguably, then, the battle is less about winning a particular election or funding a particular effort or establishing a particular law, although those things are important, too, than it is about winning the war for minds, no lasting change can come from any individual political victory so long as the population is fed on falsehood. So, how then do we change someone's mind? And are there certain types of argumentation that have a proven track record of changing minds and hearts? Well, a 2016 study by current University of Chicago professor Chen Hao Tan provides some practical answers. Tan and his co researchers looked at two years of online discussions in the Reddit forum Change My View, or CMV. Where users post an argument and invite people to reason against it with a full line of reasoning, unlike the debates that often unfold on Facebook and Twitter. Now, granted, users of CMV are clearly inviting dialogue, so they're already open to persuasion more than the average person. Most posters don't change their original opinion due to the responses they receive, but they do post those that do post a delta symbol. Here's what the study found We naturally tend to side with the majority. If we find that we are in a camp all by ourselves, we're more likely to question our position. And the study confirmed when it found that the the number of challengers to the original poster's position increased the likelihood that the original poster would change his mind. Original posters were more likely to to be persuaded by challengers who offered multiple replies, but only up to a certain point. So this indicates that real persuasion takes some effort, persistence, and time, but it's also important to know when further attempts will be fruitless. After three or four unsuccessful attempts, it's unlikely you're going to win someone over. The more persuasive arguments had little overlap with the original post in terms of word and word choice, rather, according to the study. In other words, responses that brought in different language and new perspectives compared to the original poster's argument had greater success. Longer, more detailed arguments were more persuasive. There's no mystery there. One-liners rarely do anything other than stir up further resistance. Arguments with calmer language were more persuasive. So unless you're appealing to an audience already in your favor, inflammatory language will probably convince no one. It'll just cause more pushback. Arguments that cited outside information using links proved more successful as did those that used examples. I like this one. Articles or arguments that used the hedging, phrases like it could be the case were more likely to persuade. Another variation of this that I've used with with a great deal of success is to the best of my understanding, you know, here's how it is. Or, as far as I know, this is the case. Arguments that used more personal pronouns were more influential. Now, that might be because personal connection and emotion play a big role in, in persuasion. Arguments that quoted the original poster were not persuasive. Now, this may be because the original poster could become defensive if they felt their words were being used against them. We know from other studies that people can respond with strong negative emotion when faced with evidence contrary to their beliefs, especially if those beliefs are integral to their identity. So anything perceived as threatening or critical just heighten that response. Now he gives a few further rules. I'm just going to list off four of these. This is from Anatole Rapoport's Rules about Criticizing Someone, articulated by Daniel Dennett, another helpful tool to help change someone's mind. Number one, you should attempt to re-express your target's position so clearly, vividly, and fairly that your target says, thanks, I wish I'd thought of putting it that way. Number two, you should list any points of agreement, especially if they're not matters of general or widespread agreement. Number three, you should mention anything you've learned from your target. Number four, only then are you permitted to say so much as a word of rebuttal or criticism. I mean, this seems like pretty sound advice. We spend much of our time and effort on social media, slogging and traditional political campaigning, and these things have their place. But how much of our efforts at persuasion prove effective? How often are we just operating in an echo chamber and not reaching new listeners anyway, or even alienating them? If you truly want to change minds, perp- then perhaps it's not enough to simply promote good ideas. We have to teach people to effectively spread those ideas by being true rhetoricians and pers- persuasive purveyors of truth. And you probably heard me say before, my, my favorite to Maxim is, speak the truth with love, take the hits, keep on smiling, but above all, lose the need to win. Lose the need to be right. You'd be amazed how many people's minds will change when it's their idea. This is the Disciples of Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde on the America Out Loud Network. Uh-huh.
0: You've been in that situation. The person next
1: to you is sniffling, or
0: worse yet, (coughs) coughing. Flu, cold, and coronaviruses are everywhere. Wouldn't it be great if you had a way to reduce these threats with an invisible mask as an additional layer of protection? Sold by hundreds of pharmacists and medical doctors, our American-made povidone iodine antiviral nasal spray, Cofix-Rx, lasts for hours deactivating viruses and germs while protecting you from airborne pathogens that make us sick. America Out Loud listeners get 20% off. Use CoFix RX while in large groups, while traveling, or for any other type of high-risk situation as an additional layer of protection to help reduce your likelihood of catching a cold, the flu, or SARS-CoV-2 viruses. Right now, America Out Loud listeners get 20% off of all orders. Click our banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. The spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America Out Loud. Uh, We invite you friends to invest some of your time with our magnificent family of experts, their minds and voices. It's all back at AmericaOutloud.com Liberty and justice for all.
2: Along with a healthy immune system, clean air is vital for optimal health. According to the EPA, we spend 90% of our time indoors, where germs are most concentrated. It's essential to clean indoor air. Genesis is the only technology that quickly, safely, and effectively kills pathogens, both in the air and on surfaces, in seconds, reducing the viral load in any environment. The powerful, well-built Genesis Fogger produces a dry, ultra-fine mist using HOCL, which occurs naturally in our own immune systems. We'll be living with airborne diseases in the future. New viruses and antibiotic-resistant superbugs are no problem for Genesis. With Genesis, you'll be Ready for what's next? Visit GenesisFogger.com. America Out Loud listeners receive a 15% discount with promo code OUT LOUD at GenesisFogger.com/slash out
1: Welcome back. This is the Disciples of Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde on the America Out Loud Network. All right, so we talked a little bit about how to persuade people, how to change people's minds. I think that's important. But there's still the matter of free speech, which uh, have you noticed that big tech and free speech are quickly becoming mutually exclusive terms? So let's talk a little bit about some recent developments that have a lot of people speculating, myself included, as to uh, whether or not Free speech is is going to be preserved. Now, maybe you heard recently uh, Elon Musk became the single largest shareholder in Twitter. A lot of folks are wondering if that means a return to free speech. Got an article here from Jeffrey Tucker from the uh, Brownstone Institute. Can Elon Musk defeat the censors? This is some great background. Tucker says a remarkable and truth-telling post appeared over the weekend from the co-founder and former CEO of Twitter, Jack Dorsey. Despite how the platform went to heck under his leadership, presuming he ever really had control, he has done good for the world. For years, he has seemed to object to how his own company was operating. He would defy even his own censors by posting radically pro-freedom links, knowing his own employees could not really block his own speech. After long battles, he finally resigned as CEO, not in protest or even in expressed sadness, but merely to walk away. Now, most of us had an intuition as to why. He just couldn't seem to turn the ship around to make it the inclusive and broad platform it was supposed to be. It had become a canned, highly censored venue for official thought with legions of heretics purged daily, often at the urging of the Biden administration. So here's the tweet that Jack Dorsey sent. The days of Usenet, IRC, the web, and even email with PGP were amazing. Centralizing discovery and identity into corporations really damaged the Internet. I realize I'm partially to blame and regret it. That's it. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says such a statement is highly unusual in this world. In fact, he says, I share his nostalgia. In fact, I wrote whole books about the glorious consumer-friendly innovations in social media and finance. I've not looked back on those books simply because it would be too heartbreaking. The centralization of the platforms led to their demise. And this is because such platforms are too easily captured by government. And they have been. He says it's the strangest thing to see enterprising companies enter and then stay on the long trajectory to their own extinction. Not even the CEO can stop it. Even if he knows how. Even if he wants to. Now over the same weekend as Jack's tweet... Elon Musk revealed what he had been hinting about in the previous week, and he threw down $2.8 billion to become Twitter's largest single shareholder with a 9.2% stake in the company. And it was then quickly, he was then quickly invited to join the board of directors. Now, this is screen-level capitalist drama and tremendously exciting. Jeffrey Tucker says, as I've written before, Musk has established himself as an enemy of the state opposing lockdowns and mandates and generally refusing to go along with the Great Reset Agenda. And he has the money and credibility to back it up. Will he somehow manage to save Twitter from itself? Well, Tucker says, I doubt it, but so does he. Now the company has to listen to him. He wants access to their algorithms and ban lists. He wants to know how posts get promoted and why posts sync without a trace. He wants to know the how and why of the bands of scientists, philosophers, entrepreneurs, and journalists. The wrecking of Twitter over several years has made a mighty contribution to throttling free speech and debate in the U.S. This is because Twitter figured out a way to train major influencers to craft their posted thoughts to conform to official priorities. Jeffrey Tucker says the company even wrote in a protocol that forced users to take down their own posts as if to shame people into granting Twitter's control of messaging. It has felt to many people that they were being pressured to lie, sort of like what one would find in a dystopian novel. So what will Musk do? Well, Musk has not somehow taken over the company, but his influence is suddenly huge, especially since the stock jumped 26% on the news. He will seek transparency. Then he will seek to unban many accounts, or at least that's the best guess. Then he will seek reforms that allow speech on the platform with basic rules that everyone once had before the days when social media became nationalized by the CDC and the rest. Then he might seek real structural change, moving to a more decentralized model rooted in user control via blockchain ledgers rather than centralized control. This is the dream in any case, and the attempt is certainly worth the effort. Now he says, I do worry that his big news has created expectations that are too high. Musk cannot stop the purges, yet. He cannot unbound account, unban accounts, yet. He cannot upend the company. At best, his influence will introduce a pause. Will he now be blamed for all the tribulation its users face? That would be unfair, and yet there are signs that this is already happening. Jeffrey Tucker says, people generally underappreciated the reach and influence of the main players in big tech. It's well and good that alternatives exist, such as Getter, Gab, Parler, Telegram, and so on. All of these are great, and Brownstone Institute uses all of them. Similarly, the egregiously censorious YouTube has viable alternatives in Rumble and Odyssey. But they are nowhere near competing in reach and network power of these legacy platforms, such as Twitter and Facebook. We are talking about factors of 100 or even 10,000 times the reach or much more. Now, he says, generally, I've been with George Gilder in my prediction about how all of this would turn out in the long run. These large companies that now rule will gradually fade in importance as more powerful, agile and decentralized solutions replace them. The newer technologies are more rooted in actual human experience and aspiration, whereas the old technologies have been captured in the way that Jack Dorsey describes. Still, between here and there, there could be many steps along the way. And what Musk has done here is quite impressive, but also unique. There are not too many people in the world who have both the motivation and the resources to accomplish something like this. If it works, it will be remarkable. If it fails, well, he can move on to start an alternative. And by the way, and maybe this is obvious, but it's not easy to build new platforms. Trump's own truth social continues to fail. Too many shortcuts, not enough programmers, too much fear, too many trolls, too high an expectation. These platforms specialize in looking effortless, but they are anything but. And there are also much deeper problems. Jeffrey Tucker says, well, although all of this is brilliant and delightful to watch, the real problems are much deeper than one algorithm at one company. The capturing of big media and big tech by big government, and we should be clear here, I mean government as controlled not by politicians, but rather the administrative state, is much more far-reaching. The salient trend of our time is for governments to outsource their hegemonic aspirations to the private sector, simply as a way of avoiding the legal limits on public power. Tucker says you can pretty well discern everything you need to know about what this machinery wants for our lives by reading the New York Times. The Times daily reminds its readers that the war on dissidents is still on. There will be no apologies for two years of disaster. There will be no admissions of error and guilt There will be no investigations of the ruling class, much less the people and forces behind the lockdowns, the mandates, the passports, and so on. In particular, they ran a vicious hit piece on a great scientist, Robert Malone, who has been a real champion of freedom and science. He made mighty contributions to the mRNA technology and is well positioned to offer wise critiques about how they've been deployed. Instead, the New York Times just flat out framed him as a purveyor of misinformation. That's it. He's an enemy. No other argument needed. So what you need to know is that this will get more vicious. Here we are with astonishing suffering right now all over the world and at home too, with inflation soaring, government debt ballooning, lives shortening, kids in a state of crisis, communities shattered, and a vaccine that not only fell far short of its promise, but might in fact be responsible for far more adverse effects than we know. And what does big media do? demonizes the regime opponents, makes them suffer, intensifies the censorship, urges more purges, and big tech has been there as the echo chamber. He says sometimes it truly does feel like a high-tech civil war is brewing. Regime versus resistance. Maybe this has been going on for a lot longer than most people realize. With an economic crisis brewing and public anger rising on all fronts, we are in for a few rough, a rough few years ahead as the battles rage. Musk's taking control of Twitter is a bright spot. Jeffrey Tucker says it gives the world a brilliant example of something we've not seen for a very long time. It reveals how great wealth can be used to challenge power to stop doing evil. It's just a beginning, and it simply cannot succeed without the mighty force of public opinion, not only in the U.S. but all over the world that refuses and rejects the new normal for the simple and beautiful reality of freedom itself. I like that. It's encouraging. And I think that there may, be some, there may be some reasons to be optimistic. Now, I'm going to shift from here into another article. This one's from the Foundation for Economic Education from Dan Sanchez and Liam McCollum regarding big, big tech and free speech and how both the left and the right are wrong on how to approach this issue. They say the war of words over online speech has been fierce and apparently unresolvable. From the left, we have calls to crack down on misinformation and mounting pressure on Internet companies to take down dangerous COVID-19 content, especially. President Biden went so far as to accuse Facebook of killing people by allowing vaccine misinformation on its platform. In response to COVID-related episodes of Joe Rogan's podcast, U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy argued that technology companies have a role in limiting the spread of COVID misinformation. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki piled on also, calling Spotify's new policy introducing content advisory warnings at the beginning of Joe Rogan's podcasts a positive step. But there's much more that can be done, she said. Meanwhile, from the right... We have denunciations of such big-tech content moderation as violations of free speech. Several Republicans have even been calling for counter-legislation. For example, in 2020, President Trump signed an executive order watering down Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which grants social media companies immunity from liability for actions taken on their platforms by users. Republican lawmakers in both Texas and Florida passed bills that give the government control over social media's content moderation practices. Now, both of these bills have been challenged in the courts, but this hasn't stopped Republican lawmakers in numerous other states from introducing similar legislation. Republican Senator Josh Hawley has suggested using antitrust law to break up big tech companies over censorship, while others on the right have called for outright nationalization of Twitter and Facebook. So who's right here? The left or the right? Well, Dan Sanchez and Liam McCollum say, actually, they're both wrong. We can see how if we first realize that most, if not all, issues of speech, or speech rights, rather, boil down to issues of property rights. So in Ayn Rand's book, Atlas Shrugged, when Hank Reardon refuses to host a journalist whose perspective he finds odious, he is implored to tolerate the opinions of others and respect their right of free speech. Reardon's terse reply makes an important point. In my house? Now, as an economist and political philosopher named Murray Rothbard wrote, freedom of speech is supposed to mean the right of everyone to say whatever he likes. But the neglected question is, where? In other words, what's the venue? And most importantly, who owns that venue? To unravel seemingly knotty problems of speech rights, The proper course, according to Rothbard, is to find and identify the property rights involved. And this process will resolve any apparent conflicts of rights, for property rights are always precise and legally recognizable. So Rothbard used this procedure to debunk a popular pro-censorship talking point that free speech rights do not, in the words of Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, protect a man falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic because such speech would present a clear and present danger to public safety. As Rothbard demonstrated, public safety does not require any such loophole for censorship. Again, the question is, who owns the venue? And that question is key because true ownership means having the right to dispose of one's property however one chooses. The theater owner can admit or forbid whomever she wants on whatever terms and for whatever reason. For example, if she provides her stage to speakers on condition that they refrain from expressing certain opinions, that's her prerogative. That wouldn't be a violation of the presenter's speech rights, just an exercise of her own property rights. After all, if someone barged into your apartment and started delivering a speech from your balcony, wouldn't you reserve the right to kick that person out? Once the ownership question is answered, the next question is, what contracts, whether explicit or implicit has the theater owner made with others regarding the use of the theater? For example, when someone purchases a theater ticket, the understanding is generally that the patron is exchanging money for a presentation and that neither the owner nor the patron will disrupt that presentation. To falsely yell fire in the theater would violate those terms. If the disruptor is a patron, the theater owner has the right to eject that person. If the perpetrator is the owner... The patrons have been defrauded and have the legally enforceable right to demand their money back. Now, in free societies, these are the norms that actually keep the peace in theaters. Not any censorship powers of the government. It is the maintenance, not the violation of rights, that ensures public safety. So is there an unalienable right to tweet? Well, as we can see in Rothbard's Find the Property Rights Method of Solving Speech Rights Puzzles... It's very straightforward and powerful. Now, let's apply it to today's contentious online speech policy debates. Online freedom of speech, to paraphrase Rothbard, is supposed to mean the right of everyone to tweet whatever he likes. But the neglected question is, where? And where can seem a tricky question when it comes to the Internet, because we tend to think of cyberspace and the cloud in such ethereal terms. But as a popular meme puts it, the cloud is just someone else's computer. Whenever someone posts a tweet, a YouTube video, or any other piece of online content, it is hosted in a server farm somewhere. Servers are the venues or theaters for online speech. So the question is, who owns or leases the servers? And the obvious answer is the tech companies. Now, just like the theater owner, online platform owners have the right to provide or deny access to whomever they want on whatever terms and for whatever reason. If they want to ban users for posting certain things, that's their prerogative. Such a ban may be capricious, unfair, even condemnable. But it would not be a violation of the platform user's speech rights, but rather simply an exercise of the platform owner's property rights. Now, on the other hand, a government ban on such bans would be unjust. It would legally require companies to use their own servers to host content against their will. That would be just as much a violation of property rights as forcing a theater owner to provide her stage to certain speakers. In both cases, the government would be forcing people to perform and thus participate in certain speech. Thus, many proposed anti-censorship policies coming from the right would have the Orwellian effect of imposing compelled speech in the name of free speech. Now, that's not to say that online censorship is welcome. A major source of big tech censorship is indeed the violation of rights. But it's not a matter of big tech violating the rights of its users. It's a matter of the government violating the rights of big tech. When a government doesn't like the content coming out of a media industry, it doesn't always have to enact formal laws to censor it. Sometimes all politicians and bureaucrats have to do is make their displeasure over the content abundantly clear and to threaten, whether implicitly or explicitly, to crack down on the industry. Generally, a threat is all it takes to intimidate private companies into censoring themselves to preempt or prepare for the imminent crackdown. So in the 1920s, for example, there was moral panic over indecency in movies and intense political pressure on the film industry, with legislators in 37 states introducing almost 100 film censorship bills in 1921. That's according to Wikipedia. In 1922, the article continues as they were faced with the prospect of having to comply with hundreds and potentially thousands of inconsistent, easily changed decency laws in order to show their films. The studios chose self-regulation as the preferable option, listing Presbyter- enlisting Presbyterian elder Will H. Hayes, Postmaster General under the former Warren G. Harding and under former President Warren G. Harding and former head of the Republican National Committee to rehabilitate Hollywood's image. Under Hayes's leadership, the film industry would eventually adopt the Motion Picture Production Code, it's also known as the Hayes Code, which imposed strict content regulations on movies. Then in the 1950s, another moral panic, this time over comic books and juvenile delinquency, culminated in Senate hearings that prompted the comic book industry to self-censor by creating its own version of the Hayes Code, the Comic Code Authority. Now the moral panic is over misinformation. But the government's censorship playbook is largely the same. This recent year of especially egregious big tech censorship was preceded by a series of congressional hearings pressuring the industry to self-regulate or else. As Glenn Greenwald wrote in February of 2021, quote, for the third time in less than five months, the U.S. Congress has summoned the CEOs of social media companies to appear before them with the explicit intent to pressure and coerce them to censor more content from their platforms. On March 25th, the House Energy and Commerce Committee will interrogate Twitter's Jack Dorsey, Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, and Google's Sundar Pichai at a hearing which the committee announced will focus on misinformation and disinformation plaguing online platforms. The committee's chair, Representative Frank Pallone Jr. of New Jersey, and the two chairs of the subcommittees holding the hearings, Mike Doyle of Pennsylvania and Jan Schakowsky of Illinois, said in a joint statement that the impetus was falsehoods about the COVID-19 vaccine and debunked claims of election fraud. They argued that these online platforms have allowed misinformation to spread, intensifying national crises crises rather with real-life, grim consequences for public health and safety adding this hearing will continue the committee's work of holding online platforms accountable for the growing rise of misinformation and disinformation, end quote. So with highly credible threats like this from Congress, plus the intimations emanating from President Biden's aptly named bully pulpit, it should be no surprise that big tech is self-censoring, and it's exactly, that the, the, they're self-censoring the kind of content that government wants them to, now, it may not involve laws or executive orders, but such, such censorship by saber-rattling still is censorship nonetheless. So, return to return to the theater analogy, imagine if a mob boss got an anti-mafia speaker deplatformed by darkly warning the theater owner, That's a nice theater you have. I'd hate for something to happen to it. Now, even if the gangster didn't rough up the theater owner or brandish a gun, that would be a crime. Coercion by credible threat, even if only a clearly implied one, is a rights violation. But again, it's not the platform owner violating the rights of the speaker. It's the censorious thugs, whether in the government or the mafia, violating the rights of the platform owner. Now, in the above scenario, what would be the best path to justice? Should the community unite to defend the theater owner against the mob boss? Or should they issue their own threat against the already beleaguered theater owner for persecuting the speaker? Well, many Republican proposals to fight big tech censorship are tantamount to doing the latter. Now, this is not to paint the big tech companies as wholly innocent. If they had braver leadership, they would have pushed back instead of being so easily intimidated. So maybe Elon Musk will help Twitter grow his spine. Who knows? Plus, some within the companies are already ideologically predisposed to this kind of censorship anyway. And some big tech companies have even pushed for regulation, probably because it would burden their small competitors more than it would burden them. But these problems, too, would only be made worse, not better, by getting the government more involved. Indeed, doing so will inevitably backfire on the conservatives and libertarians who push for that. Any additional government power to regulate online platforms will likely be twisted to censor critics of the government more, not less. So, yes, big tech has been censoring its users to manipulate public discourse and promote an agenda. Yes, it's condemnable, but A, it's also within their property rights and B, they're doing it under duress. They censor because they are censored. So Dan Sanchez and Liam McCollum say, to fight online censorship, we must strike its roots. And those roots are to be found not in the valley, but in the swamp. Now, my first inclination on reading this was I really wanted to push back and go, but but I hate that censorship. I hate how big tech is doing the dirty work for big government. But I have to reluctantly admit, these guys are right. Most of the reason why big tech is doing this is not because of its own ideological crusade that it's on, you know, trying to to censor unapproved viewpoints because they think that, you know, conservative or freedom-oriented viewpoints are icky. They are definitely being leaned on by people, you know, further up the political food chain. And to the point that companies have, have climbed into bed with government, See, this is where the waters start to get just a little bit muddy for me. Bear with me on this. But the vaccine mandates, you know, where people were told, take the jab or lose your job. What if companies had just said, hell no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to force that on our employees. Oh, I know that well, OSHA will come after us and they would fine us $14,000 a day per person. I know that was the threat. And government's pretty good at flexing and puffing itself up to try to look bigger and more powerful than it actually is. But for the companies that willingly got in bed with government, I I have a little less sympathy for them. And in fact, there's a part of me that wants to know, okay, to the extent that they are doing the bidding of government, are they still a private company? Do private property rights still apply, or have they become some kind of a quasi- Public-private partnership, Um, you know, this may actually be where the word fascism could apply, in which government is exerting control over private business enterprises. I'm not sure where the answer lies. It all frustrates me because I don't like seeing people's points of view censored. And it's probably, I don't know, you know, frankly, I'm a little bit disappointed that uh, I haven't had more warnings, more timeouts, more time in Facebook jail, a ban here or suspension there. Makes me feel like maybe I'm just not doing uh, my best work, or I don't know. Please, I've got to be on a list somewhere. <laughs> Otherwise, I've wasted <laughs> the last twenty years of my life. Okay, enough enough claims. You know, if, am I a problem child? Yeah, I'm sure to someone. But the problem is, there are a lot of people out there who are labeled as and treated as problem children, who nonetheless have worthwhile points of view worth considering. And I don't mean enforcing their point of view on people. I don't, you know, I think it's just as wrong to sit there and hold a gun to people's head and say, you're going to listen to this person and you're going to nod your head and you're going to agree with everything they say. I agree with Dan Sanchez and Liam Liam McCullen in getting government out of the equation is the most obvious thing to do because the power of the free market will correct problems. If a particular social media platform finds, way, hey, this is this is really problematic. we got people, you know, ap- openly, uh, you know, explaining how to build bombs or advocating, you know, killing of people. That's wrong. That is a huge problem. But it's something they could take care of on their own. They don't need government looking over their shoulder and insisting, hey, this person who's questioning all the, uh, uh, you know, vaccine injuries or the incredible amount of unexplained deaths that has suddenly come up in the last year of people under age 60. By the way, it's the insurance actuaries that have have actually noticed this. They're treated like they're some kind of terrorist. You can't talk about that. You can't even acknowledge that. But what if it what if it really is something? What if it's something that needs to be discussed? Let the market decide. In that case, the answer isn't well stricter regulation or a finer tooth comb through which all of this content needs to be passed. The solution is more free speech, not less. I know. I'm I'm preaching to the choir. You wouldn't be listening to this network, you wouldn't be listening to this program, you would not be a disciple of liberty if you didn't already believe in free speech. I'm just trying to get a better sense of what's going on and how to look at this. This much I know. It's getting harder To speak the truth, even if you couch your words carefully enough to avoid the algorithms that are out there carefully trying to sniff out anything that that uh, smacks of dissent. But if we ever needed people to be dedicated speakers of truth, this is that time. There is so much distortion, so much falsehood, so much just outright manipulation of the public. And I'm not saying this as if and I'm above it all, and so are you. We, we're subject to it as well. Although I would like to think the fact that we're at least aware of it is, is somewhat of a, a you know a strike in our favor that we're we're trying to pay attention and trying not to be misled. So the tall order that you and I have ahead of us, we've got to propaganda proof ourselves. We've got to become our own experts in sorting fact from fiction, in vetting truth from error, the best way I know is to make sure that you have a very clear sense between light and darkness. I mean, you can tell when a message is being directed to you in order to to play upon your fears and to play upon your anger. You can tell when there is darkness in what someone is asking you to bring into your mind. Likewise, I think you can perceive when there's light. Whether it's in the form of enlightenment, whether it's in the form of inspiring you to stand firm on your principles. I think you can recognize that, but it does take effort. And it's not something that everybody is willing to do. That's a price that not everybody's willing to play to pay, rather. So let's be those individuals, right? Let's shine the light into the darkness. This is the Disciples of Liberty Show. I'm Brian Hyde, and this is the America Out Loud Network.